All right, so this morning we continue looking at the Lord's Supper, and we will end with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. I want to read those specific passages, and then we'll look at what it means. Uh, so verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 reads, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we would we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So we simply have entitled this sermon, The Lord's Supper, as it is a part of the other uh, areas of our text that we looked at, The Lord's Supper. Uh, But today we'll look at this through the lens of the consequence, the consequence of desecrating the Lord's table before the Corinthians, uh, but also as a standing uh, warning to us, uh, the, the church in the modern age, how ought we to approach the Lord's table? Prior to this particular text, what Paul explained in the first few verses that we looked at last time we were together uh, were simply the positives. He's explaining to the Corinthians, here's how the Lord's table functions, and here's why we partake of the Lord's table. And here's what makes the Lord's table distinct from other uh, normative feasts or pagan feasts. And so Paul set out to explain Uh, The difference between those things. And he also wanted to, in the minds of the Corinthians, uh, put them in a situation where their hearts and minds were consecrated before God in the things that they practiced. You're going to see the same pattern as we launch forward into spiritual gifts in chapter 12. That he'll explain what they are, and then he'll explain how not to use them in a way that God had not intended. And then he'll explain exactly how to use them in a way that glorifies God and edifies, builds up the body of Christ. It's the same thing here with the Lord's table. So what we see first is as a consequence of what we studied last time, as a consequence of the Lord's table being a place of sobriety, somberness, holiness, and hope, there are expectations from the Lord. And those expectations are expressed Through his servant and apostle Paul. Well, what is that expectation? It is that the table would be taken seriously. So that is the expectation. And if the table is not taken seriously, then what Paul says and what Paul communicates is there are consequences. If the table is not taken seriously, there are consequences built in to desecrating the Lord's table or treating the Lord's table as simply a normal thing. You remember when we talked about idols and we said that in the mind of many, idolatry is simply worshiping something other than the one true God. But what adultery, I'm sorry, idolatry can look like is that you take something that is meant to be holy and you just make it a very normal and common thing. And so in this case, you have certainly the backdrop of the pagan feasts trying to take away from the holiness of what is represented in the Lord's Supper. But you also have those who are simply coming to eat because they're hungry, coming to drink because they're thirsty. And so by the time we get to the end of this, Paul is saying both acts are desecrating the Lord's table. We have often said it. We said it in Matthew. We said it in the passages that we've dealt with to, uh, dealt with together in Romans. Also now in Corinthians, God cares about motive. God cares about why we're doing what we're doing, not simply that we do what we're asked to do. He wants our motive in our hearts to be for what he's commanded us to do. He wants us to love him in the midst of doing what he's given to us. And he wants us to honor him with a heart that is elevated in our worship toward him. The Lord's table is no different. So it's not simply that we come to the Lord's table and we read a passage 
and it's just this ritualistic approach. It's that our minds are heavy thinking about the very things that we're called to remember as we partake of the table together. And that's what the Corinthians lost. And so Paul wants to remind them that by way of the positive, here is why we practice it. By way of the negative, if you should not practice it in the way that God intended, there are consequences. So there's a command that is in here. There's a command for the church in Corinth to partake of the Lord's Supper in the most specific and particular way, as described here in the previous verses. The most specific and particular way. God gives specific commands and he wants them executed in a very particular way. And so the rationale for everything the Christian does, particularly the partaking of the table, but the rationale for that should be explained by the word of God. But it should be able to uh, our obedience should be able to be traced back to this is what God has commanded specifically. And here's particularly how I have to practice it. In this case, we cannot be off. We cannot be off. We cannot be off the mark. We cannot miss the mark. To miss the mark is to sin, to transgress. We have to meet the mark where it is. Any attempt to desecrate the table, Paul's warning is very clear, or to come to the table in desecration and unholiness would incur severe consequences. There would be severe consequences. And the reason for this, the reason is because it's tied to the focus of the table. What does the table, the supper, I use the term synonymously, but what does the table draw our minds and hearts to? Who does the table point us to? And so that is the highest honor as we approach the table. That is the highest honor that we must have our thoughts and affections toward. The focus of the table is indeed the Lord himself. That's what Paul taught in the previous verses. He is the focus of the table. He is the one who presides over the communion, and he is the one who is symbolized by when we eat and drink in the manner that he's called us to as often as we do. But also the nature of the supper, for the Lord's Supper points us to the doctrines that we hold to in our glorious faith. First, the supper is a proclamation. We read that in the previous passages. It is a proclamation. It's a testimony as we partake. It is a testimony of the Lord's death implying his certain resurrection and implying his sure and certain return. Because you remember that Jesus said, I'm going to do this with you in Matthew 26 and the chapter where he institutes his supper. I'm going to do this, that being the communion with you in the kingdom. So now we're looking at something that we do together and we're looking at the future aspect of why it's significant and that we will be partakers with Christ himself in communion. Think about that for a moment. It elevates the Lord's table to its rightful place as one of the only two sacraments that are left to us in the Lord's church. Baptism being one, the Lord's supper being the other. In other words, we can't get it wrong. We cannot get it wrong. And I believe that's why the consequences for getting it wrong are so severe. Because it is very specific as to why it must be practiced the right way. We have the explanation here. And so did the Corinthians. You remember as we look at Corinth, and I want you to keep this in mind also as we look at the next chapter, the next time we're together, uh, Lord willing, that Paul is receiving arguments against God's position. I'll say it that way. Against where he stands because he's on God's side. And the people are arguing against him being a representative of, of God as an apostle, as a messenger sent to them. And so Paul is reminding them of the things that he has already committed to telling them. So you'll see that even in this case, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, the way he says it, I want you to realize that it's not the first time they're hearing it. Look at verse 23 with me. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I already gave you this. I told you this before. You're aware that this is what the Lord has required. That which I delivered to you. 
that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So this isn't something they're hearing for the first time. It's something they're hearing that they have been drawn away from. And Paul will say the same thing as it relates to spiritual gifts. You've been led astray. You've been led astray in your understanding of this point. Something has gotten in there and gotten a hold of you. So then we look at the supper as it is intended. It's a proclamation. And Paul will not have them desecrate the testimony. But then also this manner of eating and drinking was not simply eating and drinking. But it was tied to matters that were and are spiritual. So it's not simply the natural act. It's why you have to be very careful with views of the Lord's table, wrong views, error, that promotes it as over literal to the point where it's just a common practice of eating and drinking. And some that are over spiritual to which now they begin to redefine the Christ who presides over the table. You have to be very careful of those positions. But. You have to be careful because of the consequences of getting this wrong. So then the consequences that Paul wants to communicate to the Corinthians, and I believe God through him wants to communicate to us because we're the church in the modern age of the church age. The consequences of partaking of the table in an unworthy manner are for us in the verses we examine today. Verse 27, you have the verdict. It's tied to what is said before because what is said before drives not only the proper practice and the holiness and the worship aspect of it, but it also drives the consequences if it's wrong and if it's practiced in a way that is illegitimate. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So there is the verdict to eat and drink. In an unworthy manner is to incur a judgment of guilty against the person who does so. In the same way, to do so in freedom, a word that has come up a lot in our time in Corinthians. To do so in true freedom in Christ is to be vindicated in Christ. To partake of the supper in the way in which he intended is to be free. Paul wants freedom for them, but he also wants them to realize These things are sober and they're serious. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to incur a judgment of guilty against the person who does so. But it is not simply guilt. It is a penalty or sentence incurred for being guilty in this particular way. So it's not simply I'm unworthy and I'm guilty. No, it's you're guilty and you'll be sentenced. Shall be guilty... Of the body and the blood of the Lord. To do so in an unworthy manner. He's speaking to them this way. Because he wants them to steer clear of this. He wants them to not only be a healthy church. But a healthy people. Therefore whoever eats the bread. Or drinks the cup of the Lord. In an unworthy manner. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We do not want to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We do not want to be those, and the way that that's phrased, we do not want to be those who desecrate the body and his blood. What should cause fear in the Christian, a healthy fear, is that the Christian, one who confesses Christ, can be guilty of this desecration and incur the judgments and consequences listed here. I say that because... Paul uses in verse 30 a euphemism for Christian death. If we are to misstep and misappropriate the Lord's table and take it in an unworthy manner, that there's a consequence for that. It is nowhere said that unbelievers sleep when they die. It is only said that the Christian sleeps, rest. And it's not that one can expedite or move themselves quickly in that direction. But what he's saying here, if you do this wrong, if you misstep, then you will incur the discipline that befalls one who belongs to God. Whereas the unbeliever will incur the judgment and the eternal judgment that belongs to the unbeliever. So that's why it's so important. That's why it's not simply we can take whatever view we want of the Lord's table. We can talk around it. We don't have to practice it. It must be practiced, but it must be practiced the right way. 
Paul says the one who does this in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You may be questioning in your mind, how can you say then that the Christian would either be guilty of this or the Christian would do this? My answer would be the Christian shouldn't do this. It's why the warning is here. It's why Paul says, I don't want this to happen, but it could happen and it will happen and it does happen. But what Paul also has communicated in this, that there should be a time approaching communion. I'm not talking about a quick pick me up prayer, but there should be a time in one's approach to communion. Communing with the Lord in general and approaching a supper of reflection and repentance. Of sobriety and thankfulness, of a hope, not just simply it's time to take communion. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to look at this the way that God looks at this. That's the issue at hand. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Who then? I'm sorry, how then does the Christian avoid this guilty verdict in the face of the Lord's Supper? I'm only speaking of this in the context of the Lord's Supper. Well, the answer is in verse 28. That's why I say what I say. Paul provides an out. He provides a way that we do not incur the judgment. Look at verse 28. But a man must examine himself. A man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the answer is here for verse 28. How is it that the Christian does not do this? A man must scrutinize himself. He must scrutinize himself according to the Lord's perfect standard of holiness. And where we fail, guess what we have to do? Repent. We have to repent. Confess our sins before God and say we have failed in this way. And therefore be cleansed in the ongoing work of sanctification. And then we are free to partake. That's how serious and sober Paul wanted the Corinthians to approach uh, this partaking of the Lord's Supper. A man must look within. He must look within, not simply to draw out his own meaning and judgment about himself on his own. This isn't introspection. This isn't simply, I want to look, I want, I want to look at my own life and by my own standard, by my own conscience, try to acquit myself. It's no, I want to look at my life according to the Lord's standard and where I have failed, I want to confess those sins before him. Is that not the mark of a Christian? The mark of Christian sanctification? It's not simply ongoing holiness. It is definitely that. But it is also to aspire to ongoing holiness. It's ongoing repentance. It's ongoing confession. So the man must examine himself in light of God's word. Particularly... How God views the man whom he has credited his righteousness in Christ and how to appraise oneself in light of sin. Let's back up and rewind a little bit because all these things are connected. It is why Paul told the Corinthians, remember Israel. Because Israel did not do this well. And Israel simply practiced these ritualistic things that God had provided to them to aspire to. To do in faith, in obedience. And they simply did the works, but their hearts were not tied to him. They simply did the works. They constructed temples and ceremony and religious practices around what they did. But their hearts were far from him. And when those things were appraised by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the people protected their sins and their institutions against Christ. Paul doesn't want that for the Corinthians. He doesn't want a church, and he certainly doesn't want it for doesn't want it for us. He doesn't want a church who's simply practicing rituals. He wants everything we do to be known by us and for the one who has committed us to do them, for us to be known by him. There's an intimacy to this Lord's table that Paul is communicating. That's why self-examination is such a part of it, because think about it. It's very difficult to examine yourself. It's very easy to examine everybody else, but it's very difficult to really allow the word of God. And it will anyway, to really look into our hearts and our minds. 
even those very things in the recesses of our hearts and our minds to be examined by God's word. And wherein we fail, we say, Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us. Please forgive me. I've sinned against you. That's not an ugly word when it's used in repentance. So it is the kind of self-examination that is unwilling to hide anything from the face of God. That's how you approach not only holiness, but that's how you approach the table. It is God's scrutiny because it is to be examined by God who sees all things anyway. This beautiful act of our faith where we're setting the things that God already knows and he sees and as children who belong to him saying, I did this wrong. I have sinned and God knows. And then in faith, you say, please forgive me so that I can go about celebrating and practicing communion with you. You already see it, but Lord, forgive me for it. I think even in the manner this what we call childlike faith. We appreciate that when we see it in our children, when they do something wrong and they come to us and say, I'm wrong, I messed up. Maybe they don't use the word sin, but I, I, I wasn't right in what I did. Or in the context of relationships, somebody offends you, they come to you and you're praying for them and they say, I messed up. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. And you knew what they did or said or practice was wrong. But for them to come and acknowledge it, that's a blessing. That's what God wants. It's not that he doesn't know. He knows all things. But he wants us to arrive at the point to where we agree with him because we have examined ourselves. Well, listen, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've already done that. What he's saying is make that an ongoing practice in your life and you will avoid the judgments that befall those who cannot do so. Those headed for hell always, always blame other people. It's always somebody else's fault. I think that's a characteristic probably of hell. That it's always somebody's fault. It's not my fault. What Paul wants is a consecrated heart that says, I've sinned. I've been forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm exonerated. Now I'm free. Now I can practice what the Lord has commanded me to practice. What I'm giving to you is a picture of his table. But think back with me to Matthew 26. It also tells you why Judas was dismissed. Those who are not in him have no reason to partake of his table. So this self-examination doesn't want to hide anything. This self-examination wants to set before the God who sees all things and the spirit who indwells us those of us who belong to God have been purchased by him. It is to be ex examined by the standard. The standard is not necessarily a what, it's a who. Remember who I said presides over the table. It's a very spiritual thing. The standard is Christ and Christ lives in us. So then after this careful examination, we are to then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see what happened there? It's not that we do this and now there's this hopeless humanistic despair. No. Look at what he says. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself. And look at this. What happens on the other side of that when you do it successfully? And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Go ahead. Commune with him. Be free. For he who eats and drinks, here's the warning again, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So then after this careful examination that I talked about, we are to then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's that simple. The self-examination may not always be that simple, but the result ought to be simple. It shouldn't be that you're examining yourself and you're not partaking of the table. It should be that after careful examination of I truly belong to God, 
I'm not acquitted by my own works righteousness. I'm acquitted by his work on the cross, his righteousness credited to me. I therefore have confessed my sins before him and I am forgiven. The conclusion then is let me partake of the table. Let me eat and drink with the Christians at the table because I am one of them. Well, why? Why am I saying that? Why? Why is arriving at that point important? Well, again, we said it's a command, but we are then to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, as Paul says, because that's where the self-examination leads. But after this self-examination from a standard outside of our own selves, that's the key. That's liberating. It's not that you all get to examine me and then I get to eat. I get to examine you and then you get to eat. No, it's not a contest. It's not a performance. It is I'm looking at what God's word says and I have come to the conclusion that I want to be a partaker because I've been liberated by him. It is an honor to partake of the table. And it is an honor that Paul wanted the Corinthians to be partakers of. He didn't say, let's eliminate the Lord's table. He said, no, the Lord gave it to me. I'm giving it to you. He gave it to the church, and I want you to practice it, but practice it this way. And in so doing, do so freely. So it's a standard outside of our own. We are then exonerated by the one true God who is greater than all of us because he is self-sufficient and eternal. So he clears us. He clears us to do this. Once we have aligned and agreed with him on the basis of his word. Verse 29, as we've read it, it's one thing to judge. Because a lot of people are judging a lot of things. But it's another thing to judge rightly. It's another thing altogether to judge rightly. In the face of the Lord's table, Paul did not simply task the Corinthians with judging. With trying to come up with judgments. Like everything else with God, they were to judge in a very specific and particular way. There's those words again. They were to judge in a very specific and particular way. They were to judge according to truth. We are to judge according to truth. Everything is according to truth. Not simply truth as an abstract point, but God's truth in his word. Personified in Christ. The very truth of God's word before them. So listen, they could not simply lay claim to judging and think it was satisfactory to judge as they pleased. Instead, they had to judge rightly. I believe that's why God's spirit would have it written and communicated this way. Judge rightly, because there's a way that one could judge matters and be wrong. If they failed to do so, here's the problem. They were going to incur judgment just as they had not judged at all. You see what I'm saying? I'll repeat that. If they failed to judge rightly, they were going to incur judgment just as if they had not judged at all. They would be just as guilty as a pagan who comes in and desecrates the table and is just eating and drinking with wrong motive or trying to get drunk off the wine or trying to satisfy hunger or sacrificing the pagan idols. Well, if they didn't judge rightly, then they were just as guilty as that kind of practice. So it's important to judge things rightly. I remember reading this passage at many points. I mean, because we practice the Lord's table at our church very frequently. But I remember reading this passage and I remember getting stuck on one point, which is why I want to explain it. When it says to be unworthy. Verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And if you're not careful, especially in the modern evangelical climate that we find ourselves, you think that that looks like outward appearance. Lights must be dimmed. Voices must be quiet. Emotions must look somber to people around us. We must be dressed in our finest clothes. If you're not careful, you'll think worthiness is an outward thing. But when we look at what this passage is saying, it's all inward. And it is reflected outward. And so 
we then see, if you really look at this in its context, to be unworthy of the table is to judge ourselves improperly. Ways to judge yourself improperly are to take your eyes off of the standard and begin to judge based on something other than God's word. I want everybody to see me taking communion because I'm holy. Or I'm not going to take communion because I want to look like I'm actually doing the reflection. No, it is to judge according to God's standard. And it is a very simple judgment because God's standard is very clear. In other words, if I have confessed my sins before him, whatever they may be, and he has forgiven me of them, I'm a partaker at his table. I belong here. Because he's called me here. So Paul does not want the Corinthians to judge themselves improperly. He doesn't want them to judge in this matter or any other matter. According to any other standard other than God himself. I would say that that is the modern charter of the entire church. We're not to judge anything other than the standard that has been handed to us. There's no other means to judge. We don't sit at the Lord's table or sit in the Lord's fellowship, for that matter, on the basis of, well, I go to this church so it's safe. I'm a part of these institutions or these clubs or associations, Christian or Christian in name. So therefore, I belong here. No, our belonging before the Lord and fellowship is on the basis of what Christ accomplished. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that is the basis upon which we are partakers. It's only because of what Jesus has accomplished. That's it. It's not because of where we do it that elevates the practice. It's not because, oh, I've taken communion with such and such a person. No. I'm communing with Christ in the fellowship with Christians, and its significance is raised because of the one who gave it to us. That's why it's significant. So when you hear people talk about all the other things except Christ, even in this partaking, they are desecrating the Lord's table. Well, I say that because it's the same way with the Corinthians. Paul wants them to think about the one in whom they find their fellowship and they're partaking of the Lord's table. It's not simply that they're doing it in Corinth. This stands for every church everywhere throughout the entire church age for all time until Christ returns. As often as you do this, do what? Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said. But Paul says the consequence for misjudging carries a severe penalty. Want to know what that penalty is? He says it. Verse 29 again, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Well, look at this. For this reason, many among you, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Could you imagine saying that to churches today? They, they're, they're, not, they're not strong enough to receive this. Many of them. They're big enough. To draw crowds, but they're not strong enough to hear. Some of you are sick and you're dying because you're desecrating the Lord's table. Oh, that's so insensitive. No, Paul is speaking from the voice of God. That there's a built-in penalty for this. And I don't say that with any joy or any glee, but it's the truth. It's the truth. Paul says the consequence for misjudging these matters related to the table for the Corinthians and for the church at large is the penalty of death. It's the penalty of death. The table then becomes a place of judgment for those who do not come to it the way God has designed. How can he do this? Because the table is his. It's his table. A lot of people talk about it's his church. And they desecrate his table. It's his table. The table's not a time for man. It's a time to worship Christ. In a very particular way that God has commanded him to be worshipped. 
Think in your mind. And I know all of us have studied extensively many things. But rewind ourselves back to Israel's history. Think about all the times that they tried to do it their way and said it belonged to God. And then how many times God judged them for that. It's the same thing with the Lord's table. I think in the modern age, the so-called visible church has gotten very sophisticated in trying to explain away God's judgments as just natural occurrences. People are sick and weak and dying for purposes of judgment at times. I'm not saying always, and I'm not saying we antagonize the point, but I'm saying that is what happens. So we must be very, very careful to judge rightly. I think there's so many, not us, don't believe it's us, and I say that in humility, but I believe there's just so many places who have removed the sting of God's judgment and have removed the reality of God's judgment for doing things wrongly. I see it quite often. People just doing what man tells them to do. Crowd control, manipulation. This is what we've been doing for years and years and years. Or somebody told me to do this. And there's no reason that they can justify their claims on the basis of God's word. That's called judging wrongly. We must be able to say, I'm doing this because Christ has commanded it. And it's not just some generic, Jesus called me to this. No, Jesus called me forward to his table, and I have to partake of the table this way. Jesus called me into his fellowship, which you'll see next time in the next chapter, and I have to practice my gifts a certain way, with a certain motive. Because his body is at stake. The body of Christ is at stake. I think this is also why we see an increase of all this community talk, Christian community. People want to dull the intensity of the intimate and the individual, because all that I'm saying is very individual. It's not me staring at you all, making sure that you look somber as you're taking communion, making sure that there's a tear rolling down your eye. It's none of that. It's that you as an individual before God no matter who's watching or who's not watching you, you have taken inventory. I mean, that not only sounds like the table, that sounds like the Christian walk. But you can dull the blow of that if you say, we all do this together. No. We come together after doing this. That's why we belong together if we've done this right. That is the essence of fellowship. The table, then, is a place to be protected from unworthiness. It is to be protected from unworthiness. The table becomes a place of judgment for those who do not come to it the way that God has designed. So then failure to partake in a manner of worthiness before the Lord would incur very specific judgments. They are called sickness and or death. Weakness being a part of that. Now listen to me. That is not to say all sickness and or death is tied to some desecrating act for the Christian. I'm not saying that. The prosperity uh, hucksters, they say that. Not all sickness and death is based on something you've done wrong. It's based on the fall. It's based on what happened at the outset of the fall, based on Adam's sin being imputed to all, but yet the liberty of eternal life because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to his own elect. Not all sickness and or death is tied to some desecrating act for the Christian. Paul did not raise this point to raise suspicion. He raised the point so that he could raise their awareness, so that he could say, I need you to examine this for yourselves individually but instead as we look at this think about it this way instead here it is to say that to be unworthy would be met with those very real consequences that god will use as judgments against his own to exact fatherly discipline he exacts fatherly discipline that's another thing that i believe has been removed from the modern sentiments about god that he just never disciplines anybody 
that he simply just allows everything to happen. And once we arrive to him, then we all should be fine. No, along the way, he disciplines. He disciplines as a father would and as a father should. I don't think any of us would disagree with that in the family construct. But listen, we cannot be unworthy in this because so many are unworthy of this. So we have to stand apart from those who practice it in an unworthy manner. He says, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, when we are judged, he's talking about Christians. There's a distinction between how you and I are judged. It's not that Christians are never judged by God. It's we're judged differently than the world. When we fail, when we sin, there's a different kind of judgment. We are treated as a father treats his sons. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Look at this. So that we will not be condemned along with the world. There's something I really want you to think about. The sanctifying effect of what is called chastening, particularly in this context. Verse 30 happens because God loves those who belong to him. There is a sense in which he will not stand for nor allow. This is a very sober, sobering thought. He will not stand for nor allow Christians, Christians, confessing Christians, to continually desecrate his name. He won't allow for it. It's up to him how much he tolerates. He certainly will not stand for it at any point, but he won't allow it to be such a practice that people are misled. Look at what he says. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and the numbers sleep. Paul's not saying, I'm killing anybody off. He's saying God is exacting justice in keeping with the holiness of his name. It's about his name. And if we're not about his name, then we're in the way. Very real consequences. I would say that to really think about this, and I hope it elevates your thinking about this, so many are partakers of the table, and we should we should really pray for these people. They're partakers of the table, and yet they're partakers of malice, slander, gossip, and they're taking communion. So many are hucksters and hirelings presiding over the table. So they're handing out the elements to people like them. And they want you to think that Christ is presiding in their midst. <clears throat> and I'm not talking about one place in particular. I'm talking about all places who do this. So many hucksters and hirelings are presiding over the table and administering it with no fellowship in Christ. They don't have fellowship with Christ and they're telling you this is the Lord's Supper. That's a bit of deception. Because if it's his supper, I have to be in him, especially if I preside over it. So many are partaking of the elements without any care for the one to whom the elements point. Paul does not allow it. He does not allow it. But you know who doesn't allow it? Even more so, God. God does not allow this. He may permit it for a time, but he does not allow it. He does not sanction it. And he does not authorize it. Verse 31, he says how to avoid it. We've talked about that. If we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So then how do we avoid judgment? We go back to it. Self-examination according to God's standard. Grammatically, I love how this is put. It signifies a past action with reference to time. Self-examination. It's not simply that, uh-oh, they're about to pass the tray around. I have to do this. It's that I'm in the business of examination, self-examination. And so therefore, for the most part, it's already been done. 
So when I walk into the Lord's church and when I want to be a partaker of his table, that part of it is done. Now I can concentrate on what the table points me to. As opposed to, oh, I've lived like a pagan every single moment of the week and of my day. And so now the table's coming. I have to make sure I got to do whatever I have to do as a rabbit's foot or symbol of luck uh, for me to be able to partake of the table. I'm not going to put a percentage to this, but there are a lot of Christians who act and think that way. And I remember when I was an unbeliever sitting in places called churches, I thought that way. Oh, it's coming. OK, uh, everyone looks like they're praying. I need to pray. I'm not praying anybody, but it looks like I'm doing something that I have to do to prepare for the table. No, your preparation is already there. Now you're about to practice. You've already prepared. Now you're practicing, not performing. You're practicing. Performance is what everyone is doing. That's not good. That's unworthy. We're practicing in step with what we've already done. It's past action. Again, this isn't a quick pick-me-up prayer before the table. This isn't let's transition from our time of not paying attention to now let's really reflect because the lights are dim. See how much humanism has been tied into this? But rather, it is to have, listen to this, no deliberate charge against you in the face of God's holiness and under the bar of his justice. No deliberate charge against you in the face of God's holiness under the bar of his justice. Let me help encourage you. If you are in the habit of confessing your sins before God, you don't have to worry about the penalties incurred for those who come to the table and desecrate. You don't have to fear. There's no reason to fear. We don't come to this in fear. We come to it by faith. But to partake of the table and to not care at all for Christ or the things he cares for, then you should be concerned. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying it to them, and I believe he's saying it to us because God's spirit is behind all this. It is why Paul had been teaching the Corinthians to be truly free. He's teaching them to be free, free in Christ. If they were not truly free in their enslavement, they would desecrate God's sacrament. The table. But listen, even if we have failed and sinned in this way, and if we are indeed judged, it's no small matter. We don't breathe a sigh of relief. But this is not a judgment that would cast the repentant to hell. It wouldn't cast those who are repentant to hell. We are dealt with as sons of God. We are disciplined to bring correction and restoration. In this case, for Christians, the restoration is to meet him face to face. It is the penalty of desecrating something when your life's habit has not been desecration, but you have misstepped, mistook, missed the mark. And yet God, who sees all things, forgives because there is a desire to truly walk with him. It's not do something to get ready or God will take you out. Paul is not threatening anybody here. He's saying the threats are already embedded, but so are the mercies. They're both in here. That's the whole of the Christian life and walk. If that means those judgments of sickness and death in this case, then those things do have a corrective purpose for the Christian. Rather than let the Christian persist in unworthiness at the table or unholiness before the Lord in this way. How can I speak this way in light of eternity? I can speak this way in light of eternity. Let's not sever God's eternality from the Lord's table. We can't sever the two. We're not just doing things in time. We're doing things that impact eternity, even in our Partaking of the table. The judgment to which is referred here is to be brought near to him by his chastening hand. We are brought near to him in mercy. We are also brought near to him in chastening. Where am I getting that from? Well, we're studying Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse six. I believe Paul otherwise writes for whom he loves. He what he chastens. 
whom he loves, he chastens. This judgment, verse 32, is certainly one that is distinct from the judgment of the world, however. I love the way Paul says it because as we look to close, Paul doesn't make an apology for this. He doesn't say, you know, I know this is hard to hear and I know this is difficult for you to understand. He says this is the way it is because this is who God is. We have to be okay with the God of mercy and also okay with the God of judgment. And in light of that, we have to understand our place before him. That he will not allow Christians to desecrate his honor. He will not allow it. He will permit it for a time, but he will not allow it to persist for all time. So then for the Corinthians, they were to conduct themselves in selflessness at the table. I keep saying we're describing events at the Lord's table, but this sounds so much like our walk with Christ in general, doesn't it? That's why if you're truly walking with Christ coming to the table, you're fine. You truly are. There's nothing different in this that doesn't go with our sanctification overall. It's not like, okay, I have to get to a higher step of really thinking about these things before you give me the tray. No, it's that my life looks like this. And so therefore, I want to commune with the Lord. They were to think of others before thinking of themselves. They were to practically, verse 33, wait for one another. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Think of each other. Think of the fact that this is meant for fellowship. There's not a selfish desire to simply be first in its practice or to feed oneself. Wait for one another. And then you see, this is going to be important as we propel forward through 1 Corinthians, but also as we reach 2 Corinthians. Paul promised to come to them if the Lord will. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. He promised to come to them and to address other matters and concerns. This is important because later in the book, they're going to challenge if Paul cares enough to come to them again. They've already challenged it once. And then they're going to welcome false teachers in because they think Paul doesn't care. Paul doesn't want to come to us. Paul's saying, I'm not only giving you what you need to understand for the Lord's Supper. There's other matters I want to come before you and discuss personally. But the one thing I leave you with that he left them with, he did not want them to regard the table as a common place of simply eating to satisfy hunger or drinking to satisfy thirst. Let's pray.